Welcome to the Not The Easy Way podcast. Not The Easy Way is a project aimed at helping young people face the challenges of life by speaking up about difficult issues, working out what they value and want from life, and helping them to take positive steps towards achieving their goals. The podcast is hosted by myself, Dr. Peter DeLima, and my lovely co-host, Dr. Claire McGuigan. We're both educational and child psychologists, and we are very happy that you've taken the time to listen to us today. Welcome to the show. Welcome everybody to another episode of Not The Easy Way. Um, I'm Claire McGuigan and I'm here with my co-host on Not The Easy Way, Peter DeLima. And we are really pleased today to have Dr. Nick Hooper joining us uh, for a conversation. Uh, so welcome Nick, thanks for joining us. It's really great to have you with us. You are a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of the West of England, is that right? That's right. Yeah, great. And you kind of, uh, are particularly interested. You specialise and publish in um, the area of um, ACT or ACT. People might hear us referring to ACT, which stands for ACT, which is accept acceptance and commitment therapy. And you've published widely um, in that area. Um, but probably most importantly for today, and a lot of, a lot of our conversation will be around, um, you have a book coming out in July called The Unbreakable Student. And that is a book specifically for um, young people who are uh, at university or embarking on going to university about how to um, look after their own well-being. And a lot of what's in that book is based around your, um, your work around ACT. Um, is that is that a kind of a fair enough summary, Nick? Does that kind of give people a few headlines just to set the scene? Do you feel? Yeah, that that more or less sums me up. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a human being. Yes. Like the people that will be uh, watching this first and foremost, and uh, I work in university teaching university students. I specialize in uh, ACT, which it's called acceptance and commitment therapy, and that word therapy can scare people off, but it's not. Mm. A, a therapy it's just a way of thinking about our thoughts and our feelings and a way of thinking about how we do the things that are important to us when our thoughts and our feelings are being a little bit tricky um, and so this is an approach that i've used sort of that has shaped me as a human being shaped the things that i've been able to do um and yeah i've recently written a book called the unbreakable student which uh, involves a lot of those uh, act principles and so, yeah, that is a good summary of me, of me right now. We do a would you rather question just before we get into um, okay. uh, talking more about your work. And the would you rather for you today is, would you rather be able to time travel into the past or into the future? If you could only choose one, which would you choose? Well, what a question. Um, okay, so would I rather time travel into the future or into the past? Um, I write about this I in know, my book. That's why know I, that I do yeah. in like the, uh, <laughs> yeah, in the, in one <laughs> of the final chapters. I, t <laughs> I know and I, t I talk about how, um, about this particular film called about time where the, the, the male characters in the film were able to time travel backwards to be able to essentially chat with people who have passed, but also change the court, the course of events. And I almost think that time travel to the past might be heartbreaking because you would go there and um and and essentially relive things that are now lost to you and there might be something heartbreaking about but having said that i would love to go and walk around victorian london you know i'd love to you know go to the uh go to france when napoleon was was doing his thing obviously from a safe <laughs> distance or like we you know sort of like visit historical things that were happening and see them for your own eyes rather than what was written in the history books but i just think that if 
something particularly tragic had happened to people that I love, I would probably end up using that skill to go and see them, knowing that I had to come back to the present moment where those people no longer no, no longer existed. And so I would probably choose to time travel into the future to get a glimpse into maybe like my son's life or my grandson's granddaughter's life. You know, that I'd probably use it to see how technology advances or ruins the world. I'd probably be interested to see those. So I'm going to choose go into the future rather than go into oh, the past. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I write in that first, that opening paragraph about what is mental health problems and why are we interacting with it as if on, you know, a few people have these things that are inside them that are broken. When, if you look at all the people in the world who suffer, whether it's a depression type suffering or an anxiety type suffering or an addiction type suffering or an anger type suffering or, you know, go through all the list of them, then you more or less cover everyone. So this thing that yeah. is pitched as being a really abnormal experience is one of the most fundamental normal experiences that human beings have. Mm. And it's our fight against, against, uh, bad feelings or negative feelings, feelings that you don't want. That's where actually where the problem lies, not in the unwanted feelings that them themselves. It is normal to feel, to have difficult thoughts, to have difficult feelings. Um, and, and you don't just stop there. Um, you don't just stop with normalizing it and saying, we all have this. You say, well, actually, even though you have those difficult thoughts, difficult feelings, there are still things that you can yeah. do that could potentially help you. And, and I, I, I particularly love the bit where you were talking about how when things are really, really difficult, when you are, for example, experiencing maybe very strong depression or strong anxiety, and um, that the best thing you can do is try not to, try, try to maintain some sort of balance in that time so that you don't make it harder to make things better for yourself when you are feeling, feeling That's better. Right. I don't know if I've kind of said that, articulated that nicely, but I thought that was quite nice because I think when people are in the pits of despair, for example, it can be likely that we, you know, turn to eating or turn to hiding ourselves away or, or whatever way you, you choose to cope. And then what could the aftermath be of that when actually you feel a bit more uh, able to cope with the difficulty? Well, then you've just eaten seven tubs of Ben and Jerry's or you've been away from your friends for a whole month, you know, so then you have to deal with yeah. that. So I, I, li I really like that point that you made that stood out to me as something really strong. Actually, I think that the the, there are two, there are two things about that, that I love, which is one, it illustrates the transient nature of feelings. Like, because of course, when you are feeling a particular way, one of the, the main things that goes through your mind is, is this ever going to change? Mm -hmm. Am I going to be here in this hole forever? And we know now at this stage in our life that good feelings are bad feelings. They come and go like the clouds, they come, they go. And as things change around our life, and usually you can, usually when we're, we were feeling a little low, you can pinpoint it to very specific things that are going on, like exam stress, for example, or course of stress or not getting on with classmates or having an argument with parents or losing someone or whatever, you know, usually we can, we can say, oh, well, that's probably why I'm, why I'm feeling this way. So like it's that, that transient nature of feelings that they change, I think is a really important thing and a, and a reassuring thing when you're, when you're feeling pretty low. But then the other thing is when you are feeling pretty low, don't do things that are going to make the mountain bigger to climb when you, when you do come out of that feeling, because otherwise you're going to be back in the hole sooner than, sooner than you can think. And so it really is like, I, there's a psychologist called uh, Kelly Wilson, who was one of the originators of ACT. And I visited him a long time ago. And he said, sometimes I just have sit on my hands days. He said, I'm just, I just sit on my hands. Cause if I'm sat on my hands, they can't do any damage. And at the time, I think I was probably 21, 22 or something. I was like, I don't really understand that. But as I've got a little bit older, I understand that there are days when I just need to sit on my hands and that, and it could play out. If I don't sit on my hands, it could play out in lots of different ways. It could play out in a harsh email to a colleague. It can play out being, um, speaking to my wife in not the optimal way. It can play out with alcohol or it can play out with food. Like there are lots of different things you can do, which are essentially responses to not wanting to feel a particular way that will make the, the mountain bigger to climb once you, once you come out of it. And so, yeah, it's, um, it's a good, just try and try and keep your feet moving without doing too much damage. So, and sometimes that's, that's all you can do as a human being. I think that's, that's a nice mantra to, to, to yeah. When, when things are really difficult to yeah. sit on your hands. And one, yeah. one thing I love about that, Nick, is that you say it's uh, was it a psychologist, Kelly, can't remember the name. 
Kelly Wilson, Kelly Wilson, Kelly Wilson said yeah. that. And you think, so um, it's one of the psychologists who was fundamental in setting up ACT still had days like that, you know, days where you could have been self-destructive, yeah. days when you weren't moving in the right direction. And I think you said that as well, was it in the book? Or I've also listened to your podcast with Pookie. And I think you might have said there yeah. that actually you go back to your own book to read bits in it to remind you of actually, this is what's helpful. This is what I need to remind myself yeah. of. And that's, you know, that humanising mm. as well. It's not just, so we might as psychologists, we've got this knowledge because we've read the books and we've done the writing and we talk about it but actually we still need it every day it's not like that once you've got the mm. knowledge then you've got life sorted it's like it's knowledge mm. that you keep needing to come back to to remind ourselves of to use in different ways failing picking ourselves yeah. up again sitting on our hands you know you're, all those sorts of things that's that's human and as natural as the clouds coming and going as well so it's I, I always think that's really important with this idea of self-help or advice you know giving the kind of using psychology mm. as advice out there it's not a case of just getting information and then knowing it it's a, it's a case of getting that and using it throughout life really yeah and, and it just it, that idea that we're not beyond <laughs> the sufferings of human beings because we've got this knowledge is really important right because what it does is it sets the expectations of the reader. Mm -hmm. Because if you read a, a self-help book called, you know, How to Be Happy, you'll read the self-help book and maybe you'll feel happy-ish for a month or so and then life will happen. You won't be happy anymore. And you'll be thinking, well, that book yeah. promised to make me happy. Yeah. You know, your expectations are set at that. Whereas, like, if you're seeing psychologists <laughs> who know this stuff, not, you know, having these ups and downs and that being a, a normal part of life, then when those things come along for you, you'll be thinking, well, yeah, okay, this is this is the way, this is part of the course, this is what should be happening, but I still know those things. And so I, I, I know I've got some techniques and some uh, some information for what to do. Yeah. And maybe those things will, will change things for me. Yeah. Because um, you think sometimes for young people in particular, but maybe for all of us, life sometimes seems to be divided into um, particular social media, people that look like they've got life sorted and then people who have mental health problems. There almost seems to be two kind of camps and you either you, yeah. you have to be one or the other, whereas you think in reality, I was going to say most of us or everybody is, so, is somewhere in the middle and kind of moving up and down the, you know, the, 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 that kind of ladder of life, aren't they? In different places at different times. But I think particularly social media and, you know, Twitter and things, some people and some people are actively presenting that, aren't they? And, you know, and you think, mm. well, I might have the odd day now and then where I could look, put something on social media and look like I've got my life sorted. But it would be quite fleeting. You know, I could have other days where yeah. I probably wouldn't put it on social media and I would be like, no, I'm really just mm. doing my best to sit on my hands and not do anything more yeah. self-destructive today. But that that doesn't yeah. come across necessarily, which is why I think maybe some of my um, reticence about the term mental health, you know, as if it's it's it, you're right, it's either something you've got or something you haven't got. Yeah, yeah I know I know uh, a person who works with influencers. Now, to many people, I have to explain what an influencer is, but I'm going to assume that you two know what it is. I'm going to assume that the people who are watching this also know what an influencer is. But this person works with influencers and says the the rates of those influencers that suffer with mental health problems are astonishing. But like the, the very nature of an influencer is to present this perfect mm -hmm. life and to be a particular particular way. But even those people, even though from the outside, I, and there's, I say this in the, in the book a little bit, they might have like the words, I'm fine tattooed on their mm -hmm. forehead. But, you know, when you look a little bit closer at, at many people, it's just, it's not that simple. Yeah. Um, and so I, I say in the book, like this, maybe it's a bit of a rubbish book about way to start a book about positive mental health to talk, to talk about these things that are a little bit negative and a little bit down, but it's real. Yeah. It's real. That's, this is, this is life. And it's about how we respond to those things in, uh, in better ways. And so that's, I, I think what the rest of the book tries to do, tries to give a, a blueprint for these are some better ways to respond to what it is to, to some of the toughness of being a human being and to, and to really sort of like, uh, begin to, to, to experience and, um, and enjoy joy and yes. those moments that, that, that do bring real positivity to our life. Cause you know, I wouldn't want someone to read the book and think, well, that's it then yeah. there's no positivity. There's just mm. all these bad things that are going to happen. 
you know, it, in, in some ways, those things will come and go for people, but there's still lots of opportunity out there to like grab, grab life. And so I hope that that comes across, that comes across in the book as well. I think what comes across really nicely is the idea that in uh, in order to get access to the good stuff, uh, to those beautiful moments, sometimes we have to go mm. through um, the gravelly, not so nice bits of life. But and I think I think yeah. I think that that's an important message, you know. So mm. we can't expect it all to be rosy, and um, but if we if we start avoiding those things that are tricky or difficult we might miss out on those yeah. um, kind of nicer moments uh, i think that's one of the points that you made in the book particularly in the you know the um chapter about giving yourself to other people because often that's where yeah. the real joy is as well isn't it in that mo those moments yeah. of um real deep connection with other people that you mm. really love they are in, um, inextricably bound up also with pain and loss and you can't you can't have one yeah. without the other so when you talk about loss you can only lose something that you've really valued and that has brought yeah. you joy and if yeah. you have something you really value and brings you joy it's not going to last mm. forever so it's like that that coming and going is that they mm. and, and I think I like the illustration that you have don't you actually have the coin in the book it's with the coin yeah yeah, yeah with the, the was it love on yeah, one no. side and Pain on the other, on the on other. The yeah, yeah, that's it. Hurt and pain. Yeah, yeah. like this. Yeah, it's a. And it, I've tried to be um, to be blunt in places and try not to not to dress mm. things up because I think that can be patronising. Mm -hmm. But you know, that chapter essentially says, "Look, you got two choices. Your ch choice number one is you never love anyone, and if you never love anyone, then you won't experience so much hurt when when people die, for example." But if you never love anyone, then what sort of life are you going to be living as a human being, given that loving people is uh, one of the most important reasons to be alive? Like, wh why be alive if we're not going to be in the relationships game? Your other choice is to love people. And the thing is, is if you love people, stuff can happen to them. And if stuff happens to them because you love them, it's going to bring a whole load of pain to you. And so you've got to choose pain. That's what love is. Love is choosing pain, but it's also the right move because we don't want to have a, a life without love. And that's whether people like it or not. That's the choice. Mm. That's the deal. Like I wish, I wish there was like some other way, um, some other choice or option there, but there's not. And so that's it. Those are the, those are your options. You get to choose your, your own person. You get to distance yourself from people and not love, or you get to love knowing that one day you'll feel hurt. Um, and that's the same for all human beings. Yeah, I guess the other option would be avoid. So it's you can avoid the joy to, to um, and and, and love and commitment in order to avoid the pain. Mm. But that that brings us back to kind of one of the yeah. central kind of things early in the chapters in the book, isn't it? Understanding that avoidance um, in itself will just will limit you, and it will limit your. You you might avoid things in order to avoid discomfort, ultimate pain. But it will yeah. limit you in other ways in that it will also prevent you from experiencing the joy and achieving your goals and all those those other um, aspects that you would that yeah. you would want in life. Say like even if we did, even if you had a photographic memory and you could remember every part of your life and you'd built this self story about you being, you know, a not confident person, should you still let it define what you do going forward? Should you still let it stop you? asking a question in class or asking someone out on a date or or applying for something that takes you outside of your comfort zone because if your answer to that question is yes your life is like this now you live in a box one of the things you said about discomfort was to notice where there's discomfort because it's usually something important mm. could you tell us a little bit what what do you mean by that why, why might it signal something important yeah my, so my phd supervisor this is years ago but it always stuck in my mind she said if she was asked to take a penalty at Old Trafford, where Man United play, that she wouldn't feel even 1% nervous about it. Mm. I was like, what? Like, if I was asked to take a penalty at Old Trafford, like, my heart would be, would be pounding. She was like, yeah, but I don't really care about taking penalties at Old Trafford. It doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. I was like, oh, right. It's so, it's so interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm far from the first person to be saying something like this. But if you're nervous about... If you feel discomfort about going for an interview, a job interview, 
because getting the job matters. Mm -hmm. Or if you feel nervous about going into an exam, it's because you care about the grades. Or if you feel nervous about, for example, um, go asking someone out on a date, then there's a reason why you're feeling that discomfort. It's because you care. And in fact, mm -hmm. if you absolutely were not bothered by that person, you'd trot over to them, ask them out. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't bother you, right? And so like those discomfort usually happens when it comes to things that we that we care about which is why the the, the, the discomfort is there. so it, it like it can be or if, if discomfort is something you run away from it can be a real barrier to uh to, to doing the things that are important to you or at least giving yourself a chance like a lot of those things are out, out of your control right you can't control for example whether someone will say yes if you ask them out on a date but if you never ask the question then you can never uh, you can never you can never get have a chance of getting that outcome um, I suppose, Nick, as you were kind of describing that idea of walking up to someone, uh, asking them out on a date, uh, I could imagine lots of different thoughts and feelings coming to your mind. You know, maybe something like they're never going to like me. I'm not I'm not popular. I'm not confident. Uh, I, I don't do this well. Or I don't do that well. And I, and I just wondered a little bit, you know, how do you think that those thoughts or those stories might maybe influence your likelihood of, of approaching that difficulty and asking someone on a date, for example? I, I think that the the notion of self-stories is really important. And I think that they're particularly uh, maybe strong thoughts. So, of course, we have lots and lots of thoughts and feelings. And in that situation, when you're approaching someone, you'd have lots and lots of thoughts and feelings. But some of them have the power to influence our behavior more than others. Mm. And some thoughts and feelings that have that sort of power are what I call or others in the field call self stories. And these are sort of essentially ways that we describe our own personality. So for example, I'm not a confident person would be something that you've said, or I'm not a popular person. And there's something more fixed and stable about a self story than just a thought or a transient thought. And because of that, we interact with those self stories like they're real or they're true, as mm -hmm. if they can't be argued with, as if they can't be disproved. And so as you're approaching someone, if you've got like an, I'm not a confident person self story, well, maybe you turn around and you don't approach that person because of, because of your story. Um, and so I think that, and I talk about uh, self stories, I think it's chapter three of, of the book and the role that self stories can have in imprisoning us and stopping us from being able to do things you know if you have an i'm not a good at public speaking self story do i come on the podcast and do this mm -hmm. with you today even though it's in line with what i really want or if you have like i'm not a good interview story do you not go for interviews like in what ways do your stories imprison you and stop you from doing the things that the things that are important what about like i'm not good at sport what all sports you're not good at all sports. What does that mean for you? Does that mean you don't get to try? You don't get to try and try to try and do things. And so, like, I think in the the um, the book, I list a, a load of uh, a load of. I'm trying to look now. I list a load of uh, stories like I'm kind, or I'm helpful, I'm helpless, I'm anxious, I'm confident, I'm broken, I'm honest, I'm humble, I'm creative, I'm boring, I'm geeky, I'm positive, I'm smart, I'm stupid. Like all of these are different. Uh, different sentences that we use to describe who we truly are <laughs> and because we think they describe who we truly are we think that they have the, the the right to like define what we do and so i talk about maybe some better ways of interacting with uh with self stories that will allow you to still do things that are important to you even when you've got a self story and I'll just give it to give you an example. Like, oh, I've got a big, I'm not smart enough self story. It's been there for a, for a long time. And, and there are a few questions that you can uh, ask yourself about this, which is one, where did it come from? Mm. And two, how has it impacted my life? And even three, how do I interact with it in a more flexible way so that it doesn't impact my life? And so one, like, where did it come from? Well, it probably came from my experiences in the past. Like maybe some things have happened in my past where I haven't done particularly well, say academically, or I've been in a conversation where other people are speaking. I don't really understand what's going on. And so now I've started to build this. I'm not smart enough self story. 
and I look for it now. I discount my A star. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for confirmation of the fact that I'm not smart enough, right? And then you start asking yourself, all right, so I've built this I'm not smart enough self story. I'm constantly looking for ways to support my self story because that helps me to understand the world a little bit better and understand my role in the world. And then you're like, okay, so maybe I should apply for a degree at Oxford University. And then you get the, I'm not smart enough. I've got an I'm not smart enough self story. So I'm like, there's no point. And all of a sudden, my self story has now stopped me from doing something that maybe I wanted to, to, uh, to pursue. And then you get uh, the third question, which is, how do I relate to my self story in, in a more functional way, in a, in a way that allows me to still do, do things? And I think that for me, it was just becoming aware that self story is a thing that I do take information from my experiences and I build these stories about myself because they help me to interact with the world in a more efficient way. And that sometimes mm -hmm. those stories, uh, they don't help me to move towards the things that are important, that are important to me. And so, yeah, I've talked for a long time there, Peter, but like this idea of self stories, I remember teaching a, a lecture at Warwick probably 10 years ago at Warwick University. And this was the one thing that students took from that, 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 um, that lesson, which was, wow, self stories. Like they have like this moment where they're like, I really view myself in a particular sort of way. And I, and I view that way as being fixed. I am this sort of mm. person. And with that, I now do these things and to let go of that, to be able to like hold your stories lightly, to understand like how they came into being, to understand they might not be based on reality because like our memories aren't good enough to track every experience we have throughout every day of our life. Um, and to hold them lightly and, and, and really think carefully about what's important and what I'd like to do. Um, yeah, it really sort of like, it, I find that students tend to have like a eureka moment about that, especially when they start breaking them down. They start thinking, what are my self stories? What are the things that I believe and being able to spot them in the, in the moment? One of the things um, that I thought was really interesting when you were talking about self stories in the book, Nick, was about how they develop and where they come from. Because it's a fact that we all have them. That's the way that, and, and it's almost a, a necessity, you know, um, to, to have them. It's almost like a, a shortcut, isn't it? That I'm this sort of person, so therefore I know how to interact with the world. I'm the kind of person who mm. would say no to public speaking or wouldn't join the hockey team or whatever it is. It, it gives you this, um, beliefs about yourself that informs how you interact with the world. So once those stories begin to form from when we're really quite young and we might have some mm. um, very small experience or somebody might say something to us. I think one of the things yeah. you said was, you know, that we, we can spot self stories because they usually begin with I am. So it's like I am mm. not very good mm. at sport or I am mm. a really kind person. But they often mm. start with somebody saying to you when you're really quite young, you are so it might be your parent yeah. or your grandma or whatever saying oh you're such a kind boy and think okay so i'm a yeah. kind boy so now i act in kind ways and then what yeah. you notice once you have those that you you start to form those beliefs or that story mm. you you then pay more attention to the things that confirm that belief mm. about yourself and i think you were describing in the book a really you know if you could actually go back and look at a video of your early life you would mm. see or we or we would all see all sorts of things that might have um, disproved that belief, but we've actually yeah. forgotten about or we didn't pay much attention to because they didn't suit yeah. our story. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that bit about story starting off as you are, mm. I think it's such a powerful thing, right? Because mm. the people that surround us as we grow up, they shape us and you can easily get labeled as not the sporty one mm -hmm. or not the academic one or not good on doing shows or, you know, there, there are lots of different things that you can get told by other people, people that you love and trust and respect. And you, you start to interact with those things as if they're real, as if they're, tr as if they're true. And, and then of course that impacts your decisions. Maybe you don't, as you're growing up, try for the ho hockey team or try out for the football team, or maybe you don't fully uh, commit to learning maths. Maybe you sit at the back of the class and you just think, well, I'm not the, the academic one anyway, so there's no point in me even mm -hmm. like listening or trying to trying to listen. And so the fact that 
they start off as, as as you are makes them more powerful in a certain sort of way and then after that then yeah we're we're looking for instances to support our self story we're looking for the time where we fail in our academic studies or we're looking for the time where we play a game of football and we weren't very good and, and then all of a sudden we get to support our stories in this uh, confirmation bias sort of way and then uh, like in the book I, I I talk about how the stories it, as a result they feel like they're built from our experiences but how we've attended to some of our experiences more than we've attended to others of our experiences and that those have influenced sort of like who we think we we really are and then I talk a little bit about how we haven't been able to look at all of our experiences we can't remember all of us so who how how who gets to cho who chooses what we get to remember and what we get to forget and the bottom line is, is that we, we, we look for things that confirm our stories. And as a result of that, there might have been a hundred times when we were great at sports, we just weren't looking for it. Or there might have been a hundred times where we asked, answered a question in class and the teacher thought in their mind, wow, that was a really good answer, but you didn't have access to the teacher thinking that at the, at the time. So there might have been all these occasions that have happened that could have actually disconfirmed the stories that you had about yourself. And I said that like, as a result of that, I hold my own self stories really lightly mm -hmm. but more importantly i hold other people's self stories really lightly because if i can't remember enough of my life to be able to to have a really firm understanding of my self stories then other people who have interacted with me for, for, for very little amounts of time they've got no right to define who i am they don't get to tell me you're not a sporty type because they've interacted with me four times while I was playing sports in a 18 year life or, you, you know, and so it really, that was a bit of a eureka moment, even for me as I was writing it. So I was just like, if you follow this through, what does this mean? Well, this means that I should place no trust in the views that other people have about me because mm -hmm. they're building their own stories about the world, not on a lot of information and definitely not on all of my experiences. And so stuff them. Stuff them. If, if I've got other people telling me I am a certain sort of way, forget about that. Because if I'm going to hold my own self stories lightly, I'm going to hold other people's stories about me even more lightly. Because we just we just can't remember stuff to be able to build really firm and objective positions about who we are. And then I like I, I'm going on, but then I say like, even if we did, even if you had a photographic memory and you could remember every part of your life and you'd built this self story about you being you know, a not confident person, should you still let it define what you do going forward? Should you still let it stop you asking a question in class or asking someone out on a date or, or applying for something that takes you outside of your comfort zone? Because if your answer to that question is yes, your life is like this now, you live in a box, mm. you act the way you act because you are pre-programmed to act that way and you've got no choices. You don't get to, to try things. You don't get to challenge yourselves as a result of self-service. So like with regards to even the the uh what you two are doing with this project i think in some ways self stories sits into that better than anything else in the book mm -hmm. which is when you challenge yourselves watch out for the stories that your mind mm -hmm. feeds you and I, I talk a little bit about dancing i've got a massive i can't dance self story i am and and, and of course i could i could list to you four or five occasions when other people or me have had bad experiences with me dancing what does that mean for me? It means I never get to try and dance. I never get to try and to try and improve if I if I uh, listen to that that self story. So becoming aware of what are my self stories allows me to to think more carefully about what I what I really want while holding my self stories lightly while taking them. Take, they don't go anywhere. My I'm not smart enough, and my I'm not I can't dance self story. They haven't gone anywhere. They're still they're still there, but I still get to do things. And you know I've written a book. And so that's the that's the game. The game is keeping going, becoming mm. aware of the way that our self stories push us around, and still doing the things that are important to us. And I can see how powerful that is. And it's interesting that um, that you had your eureka moment only recently. It seems kind of writing that book about how other people's opinions of you don't define you really. Um, and so I, I kind of bring you back to uh, you know some of the, the the young people or the students that might be listening. I guess. There's a few things there. There's the idea that 
first of all, we've got our own self-stories that might limit us. So, for example, I'm not good at football, then I play less football. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, we say. So that means that I play less football, I keep on thinking I'm not so good at football, and it becomes then almost a reality. And then there's a second layer to that, which is people then see you shying away from football, not being very good at football because you aren't putting yourself forward. And so it's almost like that self-story gets solidified even more. So it's almost like concrete, the solidified self-story. And so I wonder, how does a young person grapple with that? How does a young person deal with that fact? Um, you know, is there any kind of thing that you might suggest or wonder about um, to, to support that really? A young person is watching this imagine you've got a maths teacher that maths teacher has built a story about you they've built a story about everyone in the class now you've got to ask yourself why why does that happen why well the reason why is because it allows them to put everybody into boxes and when everybody is in a little box in their mind the world is a more coherent or a clearer place to live in it's an easier place to live in when we know who is who when we place people into categories of these are my naughty ones these are my clever ones these are my uh, vulnerable ones so your teacher would be doing that now your teacher is only doing that because they're a human being and because they're trying to to categorize the world to make it an easier place to live in so they're just mm -hmm. doing what human beings do but the bottom line is that they've interacted with you very infrequently they have not had a lot of interaction with you relative to lots of other people in your life and relative to yourself and so you get to respectfully disagree with their self stories about you you might not even know what those are but you definitely when those people tell you things about you in your mind you get to go i don't think you've been around for long enough to be mm -hmm. able to confidently tell me who i am and so i think just like being able to to understand why the teacher is doing it that the teacher is not doing anything wrong by doing it they're just being a human being but that the teacher legitimately might be wrong given that they haven't spent a lot of time with you i don't think that's i think that's like one way that i would be interacting with with the world and it's a way that i interact with the world now like people can have their self stories about me i can't do anything about it uh, but i also am able to 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 not take their thoughts about me too seriously and then you get to yourself yourself is trickier because you've essentially got to disagree with yourself which is a which is a more interesting thing to do i think that one i always ask myself this question when i'm about to make my a decision about something which is what's my story here so like what is my story what is the thing that i'm telling myself about myself that is trying to influence my decision here i also um talk about an exercise in the book where it's a bit of a tricky exercise to explain over a podcast, but essentially writing or even in a mirror, looking at yourself and making a list of yourself stories. I am this, I am that, I am this, I am that, etc., 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 and just writing them down so that you can keep so that you can keep an eye on them. And then I, I ask um, in the book, I ask people to to notice the difference between a description and an evaluation. So, like people will have various. Will be able to follow the words i am with lots of things me it might be i am six i'm six foot tall i'm not actually i'm five eleven but don't worry so i'm i'm six foot tall or i weigh 80 kilograms or i've got two dogs now those things are objectively true they're facts as such right but then i've got uh i'm an honest person or i'm not smart enough or i'm not good at dancing and I interact with those sentences in the same way that I interact with the factual sentences. Like it is a fact that I am not good at dancing, that I am uh, that I am not smart enough, or that I'm an honest person. When in fact those sentences are slightly different because they're not descriptions, they're evaluations, they're self-evaluations, they're stories that I've built about myself for whatever reason. And those stories don't have to define any decisions that I make going forward. And so like really thinking about what follows I am sentences and then figuring out whether those stories help you. If I have an I am kind story, for example, does that help me interact with the world in a way that I'm happy with? Yeah, it probably does. Do you know, what? I'm going to believe that story. Fine. You know what, what it functions or it 
it, um, it, it's useful in affecting my behavior. But, and I'm not smart enough story, if that story stopped me from going for a job promotion, or if that story stopped me from doing a, a course that I'm really interested in, I, like at the moment, my I'm, I'm not smart enough self story was trying to stop me from learning guitar. Like I'm not smart enough to learn guitar. That's the way that the function, that the story was functioning. It was stopping me from scripting my life. Uh, but of course, I was able to spot it. Oh, there it is. My old friends, the I'm not smart <laughs> enough self story. Like I can pick it up, I can hold it, I can look at it, I can think about where it came from and stuff. I can put it in my pocket and get on. We're trying to get better at something or taking on a new challenge. And so actually my latest challenge that I'm taking on is guitar and I'm trying to learn French. And both of those things bring up that story, but I'm still able to get on with doing it. And do you know what? I think probably in four or five years time, I'll be able to play guitar and I'll probably be able to speak French a little bit better as well. And the self story wasn't a barrier right at the beginning because I was mm -hmm. able just to look at it and to interact with it more flexibly. Quite a lot of the tasks involve just doing things with their phones and taking a few minutes. I think the one you were describing yeah. there, I think you said, look in the mirror, have your phone and record yeah. yourself for just a few minutes. Just the thoughts that come into your head that describe yourself, as many I am statements yeah. as possible. Yeah. And then yeah. I think you were saying, yeah. so I listen back to them and then just make some notes on your phone as well. What, what, what stuck out yeah. to you? And, if you, and then mm -hmm. if you do that over time and you listen back to them, you can listen back to them. I think you said something like, um, notice which are the strong stories, what keeps coming up over and over again, because yeah. they're, they're the things that are probably most directing you um, and possibly mm -hmm. limiting you in life, the things that, that keep, you keep coming back to. And the other thing yeah. about that, I'm thinking if you did that exercise, and we're, we're describing a lot of those things that people would say, like, um, I'm no good at dancing or yeah. football or whatever it is. Yeah. But I suspect if people did it over time, you actually start to get to some real deeper stories that people mm. would have about themselves as well that might not be, um, that might underlie some of those those um, immediate feelings that, that you don't necessarily immediately get to and would be linked yeah. to what we were saying about people that would avoid giving themselves to in relationships. Others. So what you might yeah. find is that actually some people's stories are, I'm not lovable, or I, or, yes. or well, you mm. might actually start with I'm not very likable. I think you mentioned that yeah. one in your in your book with some of your yeah. your, your own um, kind of stories that you shared in that. So why would someone else like me? Yeah, mm. yeah. So this didn't go well. Yeah. I didn't make any friends when I went to football training, for instance. Nobody really bothered yeah. talking to me. That shows that I'm not particularly a likable person. I then approach mm. life as you know somebody who's not going to be particularly likable. That confirms it, and sometimes particularly. That might go even deeper yeah. if there's even more kind of um, some, some harsher experiences that people have had, which actually shows that not only am I likable, I'm not lovable, mm. so I'm not going to love or engage. And that might be one of the key drivers yeah. that might be avoiding that, that sort mm. of um, the joy yeah. and pain cycle of life that we were talking mm. about in, in those relationships. But it can take time to really notice your own stories can't it and you need to to kind of i guess that's what you're saying those exercises that you've given to to attend to yeah. your own thoughts that indicate to you what your stories are yeah i think it would take like a, a a brilliant level of insight to be able to pull out mm. how an i'm not lovable or likable story is actually impacting your relationships mm. and so like within the within the chapter I think there are some stories where it's going to be really easy to see how they push you around. Yeah. And it's mm. going to be, and they're like almost surface level stories because we've got so many of them, like they mm. exist at different levels. But then when you get to, I'm not worthy or I'm not lovable, then the impact of those stories probably won't be as obvious to you. Mm. Maybe you are shutting people down in relationships and you can't like quite put your finger on why it is. And in fact, it's because of your own, relationship to your own self mm -hmm. and so if I, I you know i'd be shocked if that, that that feels like the sort of thing that would be unpacked with the help of a psychologist or even an, an insightful teacher as was nick you know when i was hearing you talking about the idea that someone might need help to work through some of those deeper stories it, it kind of links quite nicely to part of our mission which is speak um, so speak is, is all about the idea that if you are having difficulty, if you are struggling with anything, if you do find that there is a story that's weighing quite heavy on you, you know, 
we, you know, we think the best thing we need to do is to speak to someone about it. And actually someone can, someone else can help you connect those dots. So we're not on our own in this either. You know, I think that's also important to, to, to kind of say. So there are techniques that you can do individually, but also we can draw on that support around us to help us understand our stories and maybe create new ones as well. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it links to a lot of things that we've been saying in this conversation, but most psychologists these days will have someone like that, someone that is supervising them, or even someone that they're seeing for therapy themselves. Because sometimes having someone someone else that you trust lend an ear will help you to make sense of it. Yeah. Sometimes it's difficult to see all of the angles and all of the things that might be going on there, but someone else might hear the information and see it straight away. Mm-hmm. Well, have you thought about this? And, and, and so like having those uh, trusted people to chat to, I think is really important. I, I'm not sure I don't work in a school. I'm not sure how, yeah, I, but I do work in university. I'm not sure how easy it is to find that person. For example, I know that teachers are under a lot of pressure these days. I know that many academics, even in the psychology world, aren't qualified or wouldn't see themselves as qualified to be able to offer real insight to, to, young, to young people. And so it'd be about finding, finding the people that you trust that would be able to listen, essentially. Um, that makes a, a whole world of difference. I think you really hit the nail on the head there because I think there can be this reluctance sometimes to, to speak to people about these things because we worry that we're not qualified or we'll say the wrong thing. But I think you've hit the nail on the head there by saying actually what people often need is, is to be listened to and that actually just talking out loud and thinking through talking uh, can help kind of bring out these stories and uh, kind of dig a bit deeper into them. So, so all we need really is someone to listen to us. And I think um, that can be such a powerful, powerful thing. So mm. a, a, a decision that needs to be made would be the cue or would be the trigger for me to think, what's my story? So what's my, right. what's my I am here that is helping or not helping? So that's the way that I would do it. There, there are more complex ways of, I, I say more complex, they're really simple, but the experience is complex about distinguishing between our the self as stories so the stories that we have about ourselves versus our other self or our inner self that watches those stories that isn't necessarily sometimes see we think that the stories are us mm. we and our stories are one and the same thing which which doesn't allow us to spot that those stories are are just that they're just uh, you know bunch of words that that we've made up and so sometimes in the act world they'll ask people to do a mindfulness exercise i'm sure that like some of the people watching this be thinking no (laughs) no mindfulness that mindfulness that mindfulness fad thing meditation what's that all about but the the, the exercise they do with regards to the self is a very specific one where they just ask people to watch their thoughts and uh for like 30 seconds or something and then they ask them uh, they asked them, "Oh, what what was the stories that you were that you saw while you were watching um, while you were watching your thoughts?" And then they asked this really cool question, "Was like, and who was watching?" Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you 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 get some distance between the person, the I, or the sense of self that is watching thoughts, and the sense of self the story, which is over here, separate to to, to your to your own self. But that's the sort of thing that would be possibly. Like as I, I put that into the book and was thinking, oh, I'm not sure whether my students would get this. It's a pretty mm. sort of um, it's a, a hard and a hard concept to understand, even for people that are in sort of um, in clinical settings. And so I'll be really interested actually. But then it's I gave that I gave it to a bunch of students before I submitted it, and the amount of people that got something from that from the different senses of self the i that isn't attached to stories but watches the stories an ongoing and stable sense of perspective um and they really got there's a metaphor in there about the sky and the weather and about how like there's lots of different types of weather just like we have lots of different types of self stories and often we can't see the sky through the weather but the sky is always there holding the weather 
in the same way that we can always hold our self stories. And sometimes it looks as if the sky doesn't exist. Sometimes it looks mm -hmm. like as if like there is no sense of I that is uh, that is there independent of our self stories. But if you look closely enough, then you'll see you'll see and you'll be able to distance yourself from those self stories. That would be the next step. I think it's very useful. So it's the idea of it's first awareness. So I am having a story and, um, you know, it could be an evaluation story. It could be a helpful story. It could be an unhelpful story. And then the second bit, you've mentioned that word, which I think is really powerful, that distance. So actually having that almost arm's length. Um, and you used a technique in the book, which I thought was really powerful, which is saying, I'm having the thought that I'm bad at maths or I'm, ha I'm telling myself the story that I'm bad at maths. So in a way, I, I can understand that distancing oneself can be difficult, but in a way, by putting that at the start of that story, I'm having the thought that, that almost puts in that arm's length. And I, th I, th I thought that was a quite a, a nice and simple way to practice that. And I, I know I've started to try and do that. Um, when I get those niggling thoughts that say, you're not going to be good at that, etc., etc. I'm having the thought that I'm going to do badly at that, for example. I, I think even just something as simple as putting those words into a sentence, I'm having the self-story that mm. gives you the context to spot the self-story. Just really, um, it really allows you to, to see the self-story for what it is, which is a story that you built about yourself and not a truth, mm. not a truth about you, but something that you've built, something you're distanced from. Idea that almost this approach to self stories, this idea of um, holds your stories lightly. Do you find it's almost going against a lot of the way that young people are currently thinking about identity, where identity is become so is become so strong and so fixed, and and young people, and people in general, are so attached to their identity that almost this idea. I, I read an article um, just a few weeks ago that really resonated with me, and then and and I think linked. Um, so I did keep your identity small, an article by someone called Paul Graham. Have you come across that mm. article at all? No, I haven't, it's no. similar to, to this idea, but it's this, um, yeah. but, uh, have an identity, but don't be too attached to it and keep it small because the stronger, the, 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 the stronger your identity or your story, I guess it's kind of choosing slightly different. The more prisoned, the more imprisoned you are. Yeah, <laughs> and limits you. Yeah. I think that article particularly mm. talking about almost, um, critical thinking, which I guess we talk yeah. more a little bit about um, the idea yeah. of personality or self-efficacy, but it, it it's linked to both, isn't it? Whereas they're saying that if you, if you identify with certain ideas, you know, I'm a person who believes this is important, or I'm a person mm. who thinks in this way, then mm. when you're limiting yourself to new information coming in and to being yeah. open to thinking things through critically. So, that yeah. article was looking at it in that way. And I guess talking about the self stories and limiting, you're thinking more about how they limit the more personal decisions you, you might make yeah. about yourself, but, but they're interlinked. But both of them seem to me to be, yeah, maybe pushing against the zeitgeist of where identity has become so central and actually in some ways possibly yeah. that attachment is, is so strong that this is, back against it i don't know whether that's something that you thought about yeah. or not yeah it is yeah so i um there was a, a research study that measured personality characteristics across like an 80-year period or something and the one thing that they took from the research study was that personality characteristics are not stable across time mm -hmm. so like and that's the 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 point of a personality characteristic is to be stable across time it is to be able to tell people you are like this this particular way and so when i hear sentences like be who you are I'm thinking well what is that mm. like who who are who are you who sh where did that come from and uh, and and how does it function does it function to help you live well or does it function to sort of like restrict you and so this like the idea of, of identity I, I i much prefer the idea of choice so when i wake up in the morning i get to ask myself who do I want to be today? Or what qualities do I want to bring to my actions? Do I want to be kind? Do I want to be honest? Do I want to be hardworking? Do I want to be compassionate? Like, wh who do I want to be? Who, who, should, who am I going to try to be today? And I ask myself that question every day. And so rather than me waking up and thinking, I am this way already, and that will dictate what I do with my day, I wake up in the morning and ask myself, who do I want to be? What sort of personality characteristics would I like to bring to my to my behavior today 
And so I just, I, I agree with you. Like the idea of, of identity, maybe it makes people feel safe. Mm. Maybe it helps them to interact with the world more efficiently. But it, like you say, it can also limit their information. And even in a political sense, which I assume some of the article was about, like mm. if you're like left, if you're on the left of the political spectrum and you receive some information, some good information about how the right has done something good, what do you do with that information? You know, do you immediately discount it because it doesn't fit in with your way of, uh, of viewing the world or your own identity, but also with thoughts that you have about yourself? Like in what way is your own identity actually functioning to imprison you? And do you need it? Do you need, do you need to have fixed ideas about who you are in order to be able to act in the world efficiently so i think the bigger question is like who do you want to be rather than who you are so that's the question that i'd be asking people like who do you who do you want to be and what's that going to look like for your for your behavior um and so yeah i i, I i'm not in your world when it comes to that to that uh, identity stuff but I, whenever I hear hear words like that and personality, I sort of like just go, I shudder a little bit because I'm just like, oh, I'm not sure how helpful, how helpful they might be to people. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose what I'm imagining, um, the idea that you can be anybody you want to be when you wake up, it almost seems, yeah, I get that sense of freedom. Whereas I think, as Claire was mentioning about this identity first, uh, this idea that um, I've got my identity and then who I'm going to be is related to that. So it's almost predetermined. It almost feels fixed. And so, yeah, I, I get this real sense of kind of freedom and openness with with kind of that decision every day versus it's already set in stone who I am. Um, I, and I suppose that stood out to me as a kind of a really clear difference. Think about that. It, I was thinking it's almost a natural drive to want to understand yourself and to then uh, and to describe yourself then and I think we all have that drive you know whether it's to do the Myers-Briggs personality test or some other the yeah. online test and then but and so that's understandable but what happens is that you then get certain kind of descriptions that you pick up about yourself and as Peter's saying they then become self-determining or I think you know you were describing it as you then get little, you get boxes to put yourself in and then you're constricted by that box. And I think maybe what I'm feeling a little bit that I, I see about the ideas around identity at the moment are that the boxes are becoming more and more varied and that's been presented as if that's kind of um, mm. diversity in a way, that our diversity is to have more boxes. And I kind of think, no, do you know what real diversity and openness is? It's to not have the boxes yeah. you know you can just get up and yeah. be yourself and make decisions that you yeah. know uh, are orientated yeah, yeah. towards your values and your goals in life and they will change and you can reassess those that's real kind of openness rather than mm. just because i think what you do is you create more and more boxes until what's left is individuals essentially isn't it and that's what you're mm. kind of getting to is that you are this individual you, the, you observer. View the world through those boxes Yes. You view the world yeah. through the boxes and you don't see things that are actually there because because mm. they don't quite fit with what the boxes what the boxes look like. Yeah, yeah if you ever watch game the program Game of Thrones, there's like I, I don't I can't remember the exact term, but Arya Stark goes to this place where there are like nobody basically they're nobodies. They can put on any face. They they change mm. and they can choose what their what their faces are. And I and I often think that, that should be the way it should be with personality like when when someone asks me to describe myself i'm like i'm i'm no one i'm no one i don't want to give you a bunch of a bunch of words that will tell you who i am because they change all the time and, mm -hmm. acro and across time and i think like peter said you get this real sense of freedom when you wake up in the morning you think right who do i want to be and like just to to, to say you can't choose to be the best sprinter in the world you can't choose to be a professional footballer so like what you're really talking about is I'm choosing the type of person that I want to be. I'm choosing the type of qualities that I want to bring to my behavior. And you know what? If you want to be the best sprinter in the world, great. You're going to need perseverance. You're going to need hard work. You're going to need dedication. You're going to need discipline. Those are the qualities that you can bring to your actions to try and reach that particular goal. But it's really, it is, it does bring a sense of freedom about like, okay, what qualities do I want to bring to my actions today? And what am I, what do I really want? Where, where am I headed? What are the, how are those qualities going to help me to get to, uh, to where, to where I go? And so, um, 
Yeah, and we all get it wrong. I, I, I get it wrong loads, but I do think that just holding self stories lightly and yeah. um, trying not to view the world through these boxes is it will help us to see what's actually going on. I suppose uh, something that I've been wondering about really is around kind of uh, labels around mental health. So uh, anxiety, you know, I, I'm anxious. Uh, I've got anxiety. Uh, I'm depressed. I've got you know, I've got depression, and you know, linked to what we've talked about self-stories, I just wondered what your thoughts were on these labels and terms that young people may use um, and and their ability to navigate their life. Oh yeah, I hate them. I hate them. I like, and, and so with my students, I'll, I'll recover the history, some of the history of how those words came into being. And specifically, for example, you take the words depression the word depression was created to help clinicians speak to each other. That was it. Mm. It was a, just a, a word. Like, for example, clinician A would be like, I've got someone who's not getting out of bed much and is quite melancholic. And clinician B is like, I've got someone who's not getting out of, out of bed much, is melancholic and reports like, for example, not wanting to live. And then the clinician A is like, well, rather than us describe those symptoms every time we talk to each other, should we give it a word? And this one's like, well, should we call it depressed? Yeah, okay, sure, let's let's call it depressed. And all of a sudden, they've got a word that is just describing a bunch of a bunch of symptoms. But over time, that word has grown to be a thing, to be a thing that people can really have or not have. And so now people are like, I am, I've got this depression thing inside me, this real thing that is inside me that um, that is stopping me from from doing certain things. And so I think that when you like look at the different psychiatric diagnoses and you look at like the crossover that happens between them and you and you think of like what what's the difference between that and just like being an, a human being that suffers as a result of of uh, of life I, I i really i think that that when diagnoses are interacted with as if they're real things it makes it really easy for people to use that as a story. Mm. And then that story sticks them in a prison. I am an anxious person. Can't go to class. Can't turn up to the exam. Can't go for a job interview. The story of anxiety is now controlling their behavior. And so just like any other story, really, but like especially with the idea of mental health, especially when and it, it, I'm, it, what really upsets me is when mental health is interacted with as if there's some like really objective biological underpinnings because then people can interact with those things as if they're objective like i've got this hormonal imbalance i'm anxious there's nothing i can do i like all oh, right that's really interesting right because no mental health disorder has been linked with any reliable biological indices so like people with depression haven't got low levels of serotonin and so don't tell me you've got this objective mental health thing going on when like we as a as a as a species have barely any idea about what causes mental health problems in the first place, and it's usually just a uh, a, a combination of life of just life stuff going on. And so, I, I, yeah, I've got. I'm not sure if that is all uh, coherent or articulate, but just the idea that mental health is a real thing, which is often informed by biological understandings of of mental health, and the fact that then people interact with that information by doing less that's a problem for me mm. so it's almost it, it comes back to those kind of keep, keep your stories likely so you might be experiencing what is described as depression or what is described as anxiety but if we treat that as the true reality of us or maybe that's our dominant story then suddenly we start doing and um, we start limiting ourselves or or life is limited by this story in a way mm. do you know they, there was a there was a study that um that they got people it was i think it was a guy called brett deacon did it they got people that were depressed in and the doctor either said to them you're depressed because you've got uh, a hormonal imbalance or the doctor said to them you're depressed because life can be tough sometimes and then they followed those people afterwards and what they found is that the people that were told they're depressed because they got a hormonal imbalance their lives shut down it became mm. the go-to excuse the go-to story that functioned to control their their behavior and it's because as soon as you tie something to biology it becomes more real it becomes more of a no this is real i am depressed i am anxious my biology is saying so and so like just 
and and that's just a, like a, a difference between a doctor saying it's a hormonal imbalance versus you know life's hard sometimes the people that were told life's hard sometimes they just got on with it mm. and so like there, there's something there is something about like holding those stories lightly and and the impact that doing so can have on your life whereas when you hold on too tightly to I am anxious. I am an anxious sort of person. This anxiety is within me as a human being. What does that mean for what you can do? I suppose, you know, young people listening who, who might have been told that they have anxiety or depression or might um, see that as their dominant story. Um, I mean, why might some young people maybe feel defensive or feel guarded by hearing us talk about uh, those labels in this way, do you think? To be, to be truthful, it's because it justifies their decisions. It allows them to go, oh, right. So if I choose not to go to that exam, it's because of this depression or this anxiety thing. Therefore, you can't put any blame on me for not going. Don't blame me for not going. It's my depression or my anxiety thing. And just to be, just to be clear here, if a doctor comes to you and says you're depressed or you're anxious, you know, the first thing you're going to feel is relief. You're going to be like, oh, everything makes sense now. Everything makes sense to me. All those experiences, they all make sense to me. But after that, what you're going to have is a story that's going to function to imprison you. Okay, well, um, thank you for your time and coming to talk to us today, Nick. Um, you can hopefully tell that when I said at the beginning how much I love the book, I really have with uh, all, all the questions that could, uh, could have taken up so much more of your time um, really talking through this because um, it just chimes so much with, with our mission and, and our aim. So, um, yeah, I think the book's out in July, so I would urge um, everybody who is at university, going to university, and um, or, or just a person, <laughs> just a yeah. human being in the world thinking about yeah, how to live life, to, to, to read it. Um, it, it really um, brought, brought home in such a clear, accessible, genuine, um, and I think your, you know, your voice and sharing your experience the way you did, and it was so genuine, I would... Uh, yeah fully recommend it to everybody so so thank you um so much for your time um if anybody wants to find you follow you how would you recommend they go about finding you um i'm on twitter but i, I don't think a lot of young people are actually on twitter it turns out oh, okay. and uh but i'm on email you can find me on the on the internet easily okay, uh, easily yeah. enough if anyone's got feedback i'd love to hear people's feedback if they buy the book and they want to drop me an email then that would be okay. uh, that would be great thank you so much nick it's been it's been really really wonderful talking to you and a really insightful conversation and the difficult part will be trying to find the bits to uh, to include in our short version so yeah thank you thank you very much Three, two, one.